all of us, we are part of this village. When one group of people are fighting, we are all affected. That is the African Ubuntu. That is a powerful force in Africa that helps to keep communities intact because you realize that it will not help you to hate another person because then you will never be at peace yourself. Hello and welcome to All Things Reconciled, the podcast of the Peace and Reconciliation Network, a commission of the World Evangelical Alliance. The WEA represents over 600 million Christians around the world. And so this podcast is intended to inspire and equip you to be an everyday peacemaker, to be involved in the reconciling work of God in your community and peacemaking, reconciliation, ministry. This is an everyday task of the Christian in your location. And so it's not just for the special people, although we have a very special person, Martin Capenda, with us today from Africa to talk about the work of PRN and peace and reconciliation on that continent. So hope you're encouraged and inspired and can sit back, grab a coffee or some water and enjoy this conversation. Martin Capenda, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Phil, for this opportunity for me to be part of the podcast. So, Martin, you're living in Lusaka, Zambia. You serve as the regional coordinator for the Peace and Reconciliation Network in Africa and with an organization called Tehila, which works on child protection. And I just wonder, could you give our listeners a little picture of your story, your calling to this, why does this work matter and what's it like in Zambia? Let me just um, introduce Zambia to those who might not know where Zambia is found. This is a country that is located in southern Africa, uh, surrounded by eight other countries, among which are the Democratic Republic of Congo, Tanzania, Malawi, Mozambique, Zimbabwe, Botswana, Namibia, Angola. Now, some of our neighboring countries have had their own challenges during the colonial times, post-independence, even into the modern times. But Zambia has continued to be a beacon of peace, despite having or being in a neighborhood which has experienced a lot of uh, civil wars or uh, pre-independence disturbances. And this actually served as a motivation for me because for a long time, when I started to observe what was happening within my region, I started asking the question, why is it that Zambia would actually experience peace alongside countries like Malawi and Botswana, which a lot of people refer to as the triangle of peace in Africa? I started being motivated to ask some soul-searching questions just to really find out what are the drivers of conflicts in some of my neighboring countries and the region that I'm found in? And actually, the, the quest for justice, as I started to understand some of the causes for the conflicts, for instance, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, you find that some of the conflicts are actually around the extraction of natural resources. Uh, places like Mozambique, Angola, even Mozambique, uh, Namibia, most of which was towards the quest of having an independent country. And you start to see that there are multiple players that are involved in these conflicts 
I started to really get motivated as part of my work also within MICA that Phil did not talk about. Going way back to the year 2010, started to organize some conferences on peace where we started to bring in people from other parts of the world, including different African countries, just to come and share uh, together around the question of peace. And it was actually in the, in the course of such conferences where I came to meet Johannes Reimer, who is the founder of PRN. And also, I started to find a group of people that were also asking similar questions to the one that I was asking and looking for solutions to the common problems of humanity. Because now I started to have a broader view that this is actually beyond Africa. There are also countries outside Africa going through similar situations. Martin, what was some of the the spiritual foundation for this vision for you personally? What were the influences in your own discipleship that led to you seeing this as a outworking of your following of Jesus? When I got involved with the work of Micah, going way back to the very beginning of Micah, around 2006, one thing that uh, really inspired me the most was the whole discussions on integral mission. And I came out of a church background that had this dualism between what was spiritual and secular. It was not very pronounced, but you can see the outworking in terms of church practice uh, many times would not be involved in issues that are in the community because for danger of being accused of participating in politics, it was very clear if you are going to be involved in politics, you can't take up a role in the church. So it was quite strong and very well pronounced. But I think when I got involved with Micah and started to deal with a lot of literature uh, meetings that were focusing on integral mission, I think that started to expand my horizon because I started to get convinced that actually there's a very strong uh, connection between the proclamation of the gospel and the demonstration of the gospel. And putting the two starts to bring the holistic approach uh, to actually solving some of the problems that we see in our society. Because I was dissatisfied to see the church divorcing itself from the problems that society was facing every day. When we stepped out of our church, it was just to go and evangelize in the streets or evangelize in the community, making sure people come to church. I'm not underplaying the importance of that. But we could not ask the question why certain things continued to be the way they are supposed to be. So in my early involvement with Micah, I think that for me was a paradigm shift in terms of my Christian engagement because I started to see other possibilities that my church and most of the Christian communities I was involved in, they were not uh, willing to participate in. They were actually having debates on whether a Christian should participate in some of the community issues or a Christian should spend all their time on spiritual issues within the church. That for me was very foundational. Even when I got involved in the work of peace and reconciliation, 
I think it is a journey that started a long time ago when I started to to see that the proclamation of the gospel and the demonstration of the gospel there's actually different sides of the same gospel where we cannot emphasize one at the expense of the other and both have done together. Uh, thank you for that great explanation of integral mission because it is a massive paradigm shift in many places that is needed and happening. Could you tell us a little bit like within the African context, and of course Africa is very diverse and complex and huge, but what are some of the what are some of the current conflicts like ethnic, um, national, what are some of the big issues facing Africa right now where this integral mission, this engagement of a church that is a center of reconciliation, what, what, what is happening in Africa today that we should know about around the world? When you look at Africa, there are various issues that are happening. Some of them are well known internationally. For instance, the story of the Democratic Republic of Congo is well known because it has been going on for almost 60 years. You look at the story of the conflict in Ethiopia, that seems to have had a lot of traction in the international media. The latest one is Sudan. Everyone is talking about it. Everyone is rushing to go and resolve the conflict in Sudan. But at the same time, we do have conflicts, for instance, in Cameroon, that I rarely talked about. Even people here in Zambia, if I stand to talk about the issues that are happening in Cameroon, most of them tell me, I've never heard of that. Because the international and the local media, they are not picking up on such stories. And unfortunately, there are a lot of these conflicts in Africa that are not reported through the local media or the international media. You look at the Central African Republic, you look at Chad or Mali, you look at the northern part of uh, Nigeria, because some of them, they are, not, they are not having international players who are part of the conflict. Some of the conflicts are religious-based, like in Nigeria. You have the Boko Haram, which is a religious sect that is trying to impose its presence uh, in that part of the world. You do have, like Cameroon, it is a conflict that is based on linguistic differences, on whether it is Anglophone or Francophone, which should actually determine the discourse in the nation. There are others that have conflicts that have come up because of post-election misunderstanding. These are not captured in the international media, but normally we tend to focus more on the bigger stories that everyone is talking about. Today, each day, I uh, switch on the news, right from the local media to the international media, I'll hear about the Sudan conflict. But from January to now, not even in my local media, if I heard anyone talk about the conflict in Cameroon, most of the way we understand the conflict is the one which plays also into our religious mindsets, how the church gets involved. The church will get involved at times when the situation has received a lot of international attention. 
while the church could be part of a community which is going through conflicts and no one is talking about it, when I talk to my friends in Cameroon, they seem so frustrated, they seem so defeated, because whatever they have done is not receiving their attention. They have written to some Western countries just to get them involved, but no one is paying attention. And in some way, even the church loses its voice because whatever it will do outside its boundaries, no one will notice their work. But where something is of international repute or it has been talked about everywhere, you'll see that even the church or international bodies, Christian bodies, they tend to get involved in terms of relief and support because it makes it easy to raise support from other partners for something that is in the media. But when it is a silent war where no one knows what is going on, people fail even to raise resources to respond in terms of relief and development to respond to that. So that also creates, it defines the kind of response the church will give. If something is well known, people give towards that cause. If it's not well known, it won't receive the attention. It won't have even volunteers going to step in there. So somehow I see the church caught up in the same politics of what narratives is in the international media, and the church will ride on that wave. If it is silent, the church somehow falls silent also. Thank you for that. How much of this is connected to the post-colonial story, the impact of the you know, mostly European nations, Western nations on the continent? How is that playing itself out? And also, how does, how does that impact the way the African church engages with the conflicts on the continent? One of the major driving forces of conflicts in Africa have to do with the colonial past. Because you, you find that right going back to the Berlin Conference, when Africa was partitioned, the colonial project partitioned African countries into entities that were new to almost everyone because there were villages that were divided right in the middle and then some part of the village was lumped up next to a group of people they were not familiar with. They didn't even know. They could have been their foes, their enemies, uh, historical enemies. Now they were supposed to define and establish a state with such communities. Now when time was gone, even long after that, we found, for instance, in Cameroon, the fight is over two colonial languages, English and French. They are not fighting over the use of indigenous languages, but everyone is fighting on whether the law should be understood in a, as a French law or the English law, whether the English should be taught in schools or whether it's French that should be taught in schools. So you find that it's a colonial past that is continuing to haunt uh, a modern country like now. At the moment, you find that outside forces continue also to fuel conflicts in Africa where there are natural resources. A country like Democratic Republic of Congo, it has all the resources that the world needs. It has the cobalt, it has the nickel, it has the rare earth metals that we are using in making our phones, our laptops. People look the other way when the abuses are taking place, there's a lot of human rights abuses on how minerals are extracted, 
People have been forcibly removed from their ancestral lands. People have been made to fight for control of certain lands. All is being done to satisfy our appetite for modern gadgets like phones, appetite for laptops or now electric cars. And most of these are gadgets that are not even used in the Democratic Republic of Congo. They are used in the Western world, they are used in the Eastern uh, part of the world, and the urban centers in Africa. But in the rural centers where all these minerals are extracted from, the communities don't even use these. All they see is just dirt being extracted from the earth. People fighting guns are never silent over the control of such resources. So you find that while it is a colonial thing, multinationals also enter into this jigsaw puzzle. Now you have even countries like China that were never part of Africa's colonial past. They are now part of the mix and the confusion that is happening towards the control of resources, uh, influencing policies in certain countries, and the favoring who should be the ruling class in certain countries. All this is driving uh, conflicts in diff- uh, most African countries. What you're describing creates issues and fosters ongoing issues that have gone back a long time. And it can seem, you know, just listening from as a as a guest to Africa in this, this just seems overwhelming. What what role actually can the church play? Because the church in Africa is growing immensely. Massive uh, churches and many people coming to faith in Africa. What role can the church play or should the church play in these very complex issues? It opens up an opportunity for church leaders in Africa to understand how the world runs, to understand the global politics and how some of the global narratives are trying to shape the destiny of their communities. Because in most cases, the the church leaders in Africa tend to be local when they are dealing with their problems, and yet some of the drivers of the conflicts are international. If they are failing to understand the, the international forces that are at play in their own backyard, they will actually be blaming the wrong guys. And unfortunately, most of the times, we blame our politicians in Africa. Some of them don't even have control over some of these bigger stories, the way multinationals are hungry for certain resources. It's beyond even the politicians in some of the communities that the church is found in. That is why, for me, the church needs to have a broader understanding of how the world is running, what are some of the key drivers uh, that are set at um, the apex of global politics. If we are able to understand and church leaders are exposed to really understanding the forces that are at play, I think they will play a much bigger role in peace and reconciliation because they will know that they will not just be talking to the warring parties, maybe in their communities. Even when they are working towards silencing guns that are driving conflicts, they will know that we will also need to step out and talk to people that may not be in that community. They may actually be sitting in another capital city 
in Europe or in America or in Canada or in Asia or Australia, New Zealand, that we may need to reach out to people like that. So they need to play a much bigger role than they are playing right now. Because when you are local and the drivers of the conflicts and the confusion is global, I think we miss out a lot. What is the driving opportunity here rooted in something called Ubuntu? So this is an African philosophy. And I wonder if you could help us understand because the Western nations and the global nations, you know, not so much in Asia, but Western, European, Australian, New Zealand tend to be more individualistic cultures. And Ubuntu is a different reality um, in Africa. Could you explain what that, what that means? In Africa, life is understood in terms of communal living. Individualism is not part of the African setup. And the whole concept of Ubuntu is actually saying, I am because we belong to each other. I can never exist as an island in a community where there are other people. It starts to mean that when one part of my community is hating, then the other community is also hating. When the other community is hating, I'm also hating. That we cannot divorce ourselves uh, from what is happening to other people. And we start to realize that we are not supposed to exist in clusters. One good example of the Ubuntu is what just recently happened where six African presidents went to Ukraine to talk to the Ukrainian president, and then they flew to Russia to talk to the Russian president. And they were saying, we are not in Europe, but when this conflict is going on, it is hating us because we are part of the same village. We are being hurt. So we would appreciate if you can silence the guns because Africa is hating. And I remember hearing one of the presidents was saying, when we were being told, can we facilitate how we can export, uh, donate wheat and maize to Africa? I said, that's not what we are here for. That's a discussion for another day. We are here just to tell you that your conflict is hating the village. All of us, we are part of this village. When one group of people are fighting, we are all affected. That is the African Ubuntu. And that is a powerful force in Africa that helps to keep communities intact because you realize that it will not help you to hate another person because then you will never be at, uh, at peace yourself. Well, that sounds like it could be a wonderful gift to the rest of the world to receive that because so like, like using the Ukraine-Russia example there, which you did, is sometimes in the rest of the world we don't we don't think that we don't we don't think about what's happening in our house affecting the neighborhood and ubuntu is actually a gift to the rest of us to start thinking differently um an african export to the rest of the world that could be a great gift martin tell me a little bit as well it's connected to ubuntu but your vision for how peace and reconciliation and this this gospel of the kingdom, this holistic integral mission uh, should be happening among the churches is connected to the to the image of the African hut. 
Could you explain a little bit about what you're visioning there? Yeah, because when I look at um, the African part, the architecture is very simple. If you know the African heart, it's a secular uh, in terms of its design. Now, this is a very common infrastructure that you find and depicts in African villages. But there's something when you look very closely, these houses don't look the same. The shape is the same, which is secular. It is round with a, a cone-like roof. But depending on where you are, where it is very cold in Africa, the walls of the African heart are a bit thicker. Where it is very it is very warm, you find that they use very very light material, and in most cases, when the heart, the African heart is being constructed, they use the local materials. They will look they will look for the trees, the bamboo, the mud, uh, stones, everything that just within their communities. They don't go far away to import building materials, but they actually look at what is in the environment that we can construct our housing. And for me, my vision for peace building in Africa is using that same concept that many times we want to import programs, designs, interventions that could have worked elsewhere, but when we bring them in our local context, they fail. The natural response to peace building should be to look, to use local wisdom, local materials, things that are readily available. Who are the gatekeepers in the community? Who are the people that can sign can signpost you to signs of hope? What are the stories? Because in the community there are stories of lament that people share together. There are stories of joy. There are festivals where people rejoice together. There are places, times when people mourn together. So there are all these common things that we can all put together, that during a time of lament, we can all lament together. When there's a festival, there are festivities around that, we can all celebrate together. So my vision for Africa is to have a very simple approach of using the local wisdom that is embedded in the very community or country or region where the conflicts are taking place. Because if something had worked very well in Vietnam, it's not a guarantee that it can work very well in Sudan. Let's you, you use the local wisdom that is within, like the African heart. And also the African heart, for me, it has this sense of continuum that you have the secular walls that everything is built together on one entrance that allows you to go in. And when you go in, in most cases, just one room. And when people sit in that room, they would never sit in rows, but they will sit in a circle, which also depicts oneness, unity, and where there are actually no levels of classes in the African heart, because you all sit together in a, very, in a round room, and I find it a very big contradiction even when I see, I come to the African church, most of which has taken a Western design, where there are rows and there's also a table at the front. And the leaders sit there and they mediate over uh, other people's issues. 
But I rejoice when I think of the African heart. That is just that simple, secular shape. When you sit there, all of you are the same. There's no one who is sitting at the table. All of you are just sitting in a circle, and there's a sense of equality, oneness, that is celebrated when you sit in the African heart. It's a beautiful vision, Martin, and reminds me of the image from Revelation of every tribe and language gathered around the throne with uh, the lamb at the center. And I just want to thank you, Martin, for this has been very inspiring and uh, eye-opening to understand more deeply some of the underlying and influential ways in which Africa can be impacting the rest of the world. And so thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for your leadership and your servanthood. Appreciate you. Thank you, Phil, for this opportunity for me to tell the African story and just see how it can inspire the listeners to your podcast. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. So thank you to Martin for joining us and thank you for listening to All Things Reconciled, this podcast of the Peace and Reconciliation Network. And I hope that the this insight, this deeper insight into what is the African continent and what Africa has to teach the rest of us will motivate and inspire you to be an everyday peacemaker and reconciler right where you are. So thank you again for joining. My name's Phil Wagler, and please tell your friends and maybe even a few enemies about this podcast and other uh, EFC podcasts. You can follow PRN on Facebook, donate to this work through the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada using the code WEAPRN, and check out our website at reconciledworld.net where you can even see a wonderful picture of Martin Kapenda, our guest today. So go in peace today and go make peace every day.